Friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to Galatians chapter 3. This morning we're going to finish that chapter as we make our way through this beautiful letter. We're only going to be covering just a handful of verses, but packed into these verses is one of the most remarkable, supernatural, beautiful aspects of the work God is doing in building His church around the world. Today we're going to talk about the diversity and unity of God's church. One of the things that just amazes me about Christianity and its history and about its status in the world today is just how adaptable it's been. More than any other religion that I know of in the history of the world, Christianity has been remarkably adaptable to different times and places and to what makes them unique. There's no particular kind of Christian food. Christians all over the world are leveraging the beauty and ingenuity of their cultures to, 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 to create amazing food all over the world without any kind of, uh, any reason to hold themselves back as Christians. There's no unique Christian music. The music that God has, has used around the world to bring glory to himself through the creativity of people he made in his image is fully leverageable by all Christians everywhere. We don't have a unique music. We don't have a particular style of dress that sets us apart. There's not one kind of language that you have to learn if you want to be a Christian. You don't have to have reached a particular social status to get in on this. You don't have to be able to afford any sort of minimum monthly payments. You don't have to rely on unique insider connections in all the right places. You can be young or old or anywhere in between. You can be male or female. You can be privileged or disadvantaged. You can be ancient. You can be modern and still be a Christian. Anyone from anywhere can get in on this, and many have, and it just amazes me how adaptable it's been. What we're going to be looking at this morning is, is a principle that's taught through God's Word that goes straight to why Christianity has been so adaptable in so many times and places, why it's been so uniquely adaptable. This morning, we're going to be reminded that of what it is that binds Christians together in all times and places. What, what Christians share in common, if they live in the 21st century with a Christian from, the, from, from medieval Spain in the 14th century. What we're going to be looking at is what it is that binds us or makes us one. And what we're going to be looking at is how Jesus binds us and makes us one. Uh, so far in this letter, Paul's been pushing back on people who have tried to say that if you want to be with Jesus all the way, then what you need is to follow the laws of Moses. It, 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 trusting Jesus for forgiveness is a starting place. They knew you needed to be forgiven for sin. They knew that Jesus' death now took over the role of sacrifices from the Old Testament. They were okay with that. But they believed that in addition to Jesus making a sacrifice so that you could be forgiven, you also needed to shape your life according to the laws of Moses, according to the lifestyle of the Jewish people. You needed to, to, to be circumcised on, upon your conversion, and then you needed to, to, to fill in with that all of the moral laws that were taught in the Ten Commandments and, and the different laws for feasting and, 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 um, and, and Sabbath celebration, all the things that had guided Israel's life together. Now needed to guide your life as a Christian if you want to be all the way in. That's what they were teaching. Something like that, best we can tell. They were teaching a version of what it means to be a Christian that starts with Jesus, but then adds to him. And that's what Paul is trying to destroy. Paul's been trying to say over and over in lots of different ways that to be a Christian, you need Jesus and only Jesus. And the community that builds around him builds around him 
and nothing else. Today, he puts that same point that he's been making into a new set of words that help us to get that same point in a new and fresh way. So I don't see us covering much new ground today. This is not like a new dimension of Paul's argument that we're going to try to to figure out and, and see how it connects to all that he's already said. I think we're just coming at some of the same ideas in a new, fresh set of words that that I think will encourage you, I I hope and pray will encourage you, and at the very least, has the power to reinforce the kind of community we want to be building together here. I'm going to pick up in verse 27 of chapter 3. So in verse 26, Paul has said that in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27 picks up with a four. Four, in other words... You're all sons of God through faith, not through works, because of the thing he's going to teach us in these next set of verses. And then in verse 29, at the end of what I'm going to read today, he refers back to Abraham again. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Those two put the, the, the verses we're going to really focus on, verses 27 and 28, in context. He's still talking about what it means to be in Abraham, to receive the blessings that God promised to Abraham. He's still trying to say what he's always been saying, that to get in on those blessings that God has promised, you don't have to become Jewish. You can be as you are and trust in Christ. He's still making those same, that, that same overall argument, but he's going to do it in a new way I'm hoping will, will encourage you as it's encouraged me. The key now is to be in Christ. He's been talking a lot about faith. Now he uses the language of being in Christ, but it's the same thing. By faith, we join up with what's true about Jesus. Whatever Jesus did, whatever he accomplished, his life and his death and his resurrection are ours when we are in Christ by faith. So what does it mean to be in Christ? What effect does that have on our relationships to each other? That's what I want to think about together today. When we're in Christ, who are we? How does that affect our relationships with each other? So, if you want to follow along this morning, if you're you're a note taker, let me go ahead and give you some some milestones to look for. Here's how we're going to be breaking this down. I want to show you one radical claim, first of all. The heart of of the, the verses we're going to consider is a radical claim that I want to make sure you understand. So we're going to start with one radical claim, and then I want to apply that with four implications for us. One radical claim and four implications for our life together. Those are the big categories that we're going to use to break down Paul's message for us. And I want to begin by just reading it. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I do that. Picking up in verse 27 of chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is God's word. You can be seated. The radical claim that comes out in this verse, rather these verses, is that Christ matters more for who you are than race, class, gender, or any other thing about you. If you're in Christ, then Christ matters more for who you are, for your identity, than race, class, gender, or any other thing about you. That's the claim. I get that it's radical. 
I just want to show you where Paul makes this claim and make sure you understand what he means before we start to think through how this claim affects us, okay? So I'm going to just chew on it for a while. I think that in verses 27 and 28, Paul makes basically the same claim, first in a positive way and then in a negative way. First a what is, then a what isn't. To make the same basic claim that Christ matters more for who you are than anything else that's true about you. So here's the positive claim in verse 27. Here he's giving re- the reason that in Christ they're all sons. That in other words, Jewish laws don't give you a status that Gentiles don't have. Everybody's a child of God in Christ. You don't have to then move on into this lifestyle set by the law of Moses. He's been making that case all along. Verse 27 is another reason for that case. The reason that in Christ you're all children of God is that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I love that language. Baptism is a, as a kind of putting on of Christ. Now, we know from what Paul's already been saying here that faith is what matters. If you want in on Jesus, you have to believe in him. You have to trust what he's done for you rather than trusting in yourself. You have to identify with him by faith rather than trying to, to work your way into God's favor. So if that's been Paul's case, as it has from, from the beginning of this letter, then, then it would be a radical shift in his argument to see baptism here as something you've got to do plus Jesus to get in good with God. As if you could have Jesus but not yet be baptized and, then, and things won't be okay for you. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that baptism is what has saved you. I think he's doing something different here, something that fits better with what his argument has been all along. I mention that because I do believe this, it's not just what I believe, I mean, historically it's just clear that the role of baptism in the life of a Christian has been vastly misunderstood with tragic effects. The Bible doesn't teach that it has a kind of supernatural effect on the people who have received it. It isn't a means that transforms you, that changes anything about you. It's wonderful, beautiful, and powerful, but not in that way. And so whether, if, if you've been baptized before and thought that, well, now I'm good to go and you could check out on what it is to follow Jesus, friends, you might be deceived. If you haven't been baptized yet, then this verse right here is not meant to scare you as if you can't go to sleep at night until you have because you're afraid you might miss out on Jesus. That, that's not what Paul's saying. Baptism doesn't do that. I think what he is saying about baptism, what makes it so powerful, so beautiful, is that for Paul and others, baptism is a, is a kind of shorthand reference for becoming a Christian. It's part of the things that happen to you when you identify with Jesus. Faith is the most fundamental thing. Just trusting in what he has done for you is what gets you in on who Jesus is and all that he's done. But faith it, it leads inevitably to other things like identifying with Jesus' body on earth, the church. And, and the, 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 the act that God has given to his church to help identify people with their church is baptism. So sometimes for Paul, when he uses baptism, he has that whole package deal in mind. Faith, of course, the thing that gets you one with Christ, but also a public profession of that faith and also a local church hearing your profession and bringing you into the church through baptism. He has in mind the whole package when he says, as many of you has been baptized have put on Christ. One of my favorite images for this, for what it is to be baptized um, that, that someone else came up with, is, is that it's like a, a team jersey that you put on. It's a two-way transaction. 
you join a team, you have to want to be on the team. You have to ask for that jersey. You have to sign up to be on the team or, 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 or whatever. But then the team also has to give you the jersey. You can't just go around telling people that you're part of that team and not having it certified in any way. Like it matters that the team says, yeah, they are on the team. Here, here's your jersey. That's how people will know. Put this on. The jersey then becomes a kind of shorthand for your belonging. A belonging that you want for yourself that others have also given to you. I think that's what he, when he says that we've put on Christ, it's as if we've put on that team jersey. It marks us as being with him. Baptism is not just a symbol of our identity in Christ. It's a, a symbol of our connection to others who've been baptized too. That's going to matter a lot in verse 28. Um, this time of year, I watch uh, at least my share, if not more than my share of college football. And uh, that means watching at least my share, more than my share, of those terrible college commercials. You know, these are uh, university commercials. You guys know what I'm talking about. The one, if you watch any college football, you know what I'm talking about. There will be two or three of them over the course of a game, advertising the school, not the football program. And you can tell that the successful football programs are putting their money into paying their football players, not paying for effective marketing. These things are terrible, almost exclusively. But there was one that I'll admit, I mean, maybe my bias is affecting me here, but there was, a, there was an Auburn commercial <laughs> a few years ago that was actually really solid. It, it, it was, um, if I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I'm going to try to roughly describe it. Maybe you guys have seen it too. It, it, was, a, it was a commercial that the only copy for it was our battle cry, War Eagle. That was the only copy, the only thing that was said over the course of the commercial. But what they did was put people in all sorts of situations, really all over the world, where they run into somebody who's got a little Auburn pin on or like an Auburn shirt or a hat, something that, that they see about each other and they say, War Eagle, War Eagle, War Eagle, War Eagle, War Eagle. Somebody's in an international airport and speaking a totally different language and in their own language, War Eagle. They're old and young War Eagling each other, rich and poor, American and some other nationality. I mean, all, all these different lines that normally would divide people transcended by the power of the War Eagle. It was an effective commercial. Actually, I thought it really worked. And I think also works as an illustration for what Paul's trying to say here. When you've put on Christ in baptism, when you've put that team jersey on, Jesus and what he offers to you becomes a spark of recognition. A spark that others recognize and that you see in them. A passionate commitment that you have in common that connects you to others who share that commitment. When those, as many of you who are baptized, have put on Christ. That's who you are now. That's what makes you sons and daughters of Abraham. Not anything else you might do. So that's the positive point Paul's making. The same radical claim. Christ is more important to who you are than anything else about you. When you've been baptized, you put on Christ. There's the positive claim. He makes the same point now negatively in verse 28. These other traits, true about you, important, big effect on your life, they don't define you. And they don't have to be what connects you to others or what separates you from others. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. If you've put on Christ, Christ defines who you are not these other significant factors. This list is not meant to be exhaustive. 
Paul's not just picked three things that can't define you anymore. But though it's not an exhaustive list, it's a very carefully chosen list. Very intentional. He's chosen these particular examples to make the point as strongly as he can possibly make it. Here's how one commentator put it. I didn't realize this until I read this. I'm taking this guy's word for it. But he says that, that these three categories, Jew-Gentile, slave-free, male-female, were the most far-reaching distinctions of ancient society. That's a quote from him. And he says, quote, they seem to have been deliberately chosen, I'm talking about by Paul for this list, they seem to have been deliberately chosen with an eye to the threefold privilege for which a pious male Jew daily thanked God. That he was not made a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's strong language from this writer and makes Paul's language pack the punch that Paul meant it to. He chose these to make the point. When you're in Christ, that's who you are. And I don't think the claim is any less radical today. Is it? I mean, the the overlap isn't perfect between Paul's categories and, and categories that define how we tend to identify each other and with each other today. But in these contrasts, the Jew-Gentile, slave-free, male-female, you've got, if not a perfect overlap, a version of what we Westerners also single out as the biggest factors for our identity and our experience of the world. You've got race, class, and gender. Jew-Gentile, slave-free, male-female. What Paul is saying is not that these differences don't matter. He's definitely not saying that they don't affect our lives. I'm going to say a lot more about that here in a little bit. He also doesn't say that they disappear or somehow become unimportant when when you join up with the local church and and you're in Christ. What he is saying is that even these fundamental, substantial differences are nothing compared to being in Christ. What you share in Christ pushes what divides you out of the center of who you are and to the margins. That raises a question I want to chew on for a minute here, friends, before we move on to the implications. I want to, I want to, I want to raise this question here, just so far, about what he said with this radical claim that, that will set us up for, for considering the implications of this claim for our lives together. What is this solidarity Paul has in mind that's more fundamental than race and class and gender? What is this unity based on? When you put on Christ so that these huge differences fade back, what have you put on exactly? Two things that we, that, that, that we identify when we put on Christ. Two things that unite us at a level more fundamental to who we are than anything that divides us. When we put on Christ, we are now united by desperation and deliverance. Desperation and deliverance. Let me just chew on these for a minute here. Then we'll talk about implications. The, the, the act of baptism that Paul refers to in verse 27, it's a very carefully scripted act. Every movement of it matters. It packs symbolic significance. When you go down into the water, you're identifying with the death of Jesus. In his death, you see your own death. 
And behind, behind that, behind that symbolism is another reality. Apart from him, apart from his death that I'm joining myself to, I'm dead. I have no hope, no life on my own. My life will either be defined by Jesus' death for me or by my death, one or the other. One thing that pushes other differences to the margin for those who hope in Christ is a recognition in one another of the desperate truth that drove them to Jesus in the first place. There is no one else, no other hope that can stand. Even baptism itself pictures it. This is life and death we're talking about here. Recently, I read a, a book. I think I've mentioned it up here before. Uh, loved this book over the, around the turn of the year, Christmas break or so. Uh, a, a book about um, Harper Lee, um, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, that also does a lot with her relationship to Truman Capote, who's a childhood friend of hers. Um, and, and, and at one point in the book, talks a lot about the bond that they developed, even as little kids. And the way that Harper Lee described that bond is with a phrase that struck me immediately and that has really continued to, 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 to affect how I think even about our connection with one another as a church. When, when asked by an interviewer in, a, in one of her rare interviews uh, about how she and Truman Capote became such good friends, she referred to them as being bound by a common anguish. Bound by a common anguish. She didn't define what she meant what anguish she had in mind. I wonder if it was the anguish they felt at being small town children thinking bigger, knowing there was a big world out there that they weren't getting to experience. I don't know, maybe. I wonder if it was an anguish rooted in their both being very intellectual and, and creative and artsy, surrounded by folks who live closer to the earth. I wonder if it was a, a, an anguish that came from they're being troubled by a brokenness that other people wouldn't acknowledge in their society. I wonder if their anguish had to do with their own identities, conflicted as they were before their time. I don't know what that common anguish was, but the phrase is powerful and I think relevant for the point that Paul's trying to make here. Sometimes you hear, or many of you have certainly read or even experienced the immediate connection that those who participate in a recovery group feel with one another. That you can walk into a group that, that full of people you've never met before and have a quick and immediate bond because to walk through that door, you have to acknowledge something about yourself. That you've hit rock bottom, that there was nowhere else for you to go, that, that, that you can't do this on your own, you need help. There's, a, there's an immediate bond, a common anguish that connects people in such a group. And in Christ, we're supposed to be building our relationships around an anguish even more fundamental and unshakable and beyond our power to resolve. We know ourselves to be in Christ at all. Before you put on Christ, the reason you put Him on is that you know yourself to be a sinner in need of redemption. You know yourself to be dying in need of resurrection. You know that our world for all its beauty is broken and in need of healing. And this anguish remains. It's an undercurrent and a burden that's heavier for you than any other. You won't put on Christ unless this is the anguish that you live with. So when you're in Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, 
male or female, rich or poor, young or old, Republican or Democrat, throw in your own preferred binary. There is only sinner in need of redemption. We're bound by a common desperation. That's what it means to put on Christ, to have acknowledged the truth about yourself. And we're bound by a common deliverance. When you put on Christ, you acknowledge that if I'm going to be redeemed, it's only going to be because Christ became a curse for me. I'll either bear the curse of the law myself. I'll either suffer the punishment that my sins deserve or Christ will bear that curse for me Christ will pay the cost of my forgiveness Christ will die the death that has to come before my resurrection Christ will be wounded for my healing when you put on Christ you recognize there's no pecking order before him There is no one person who does any more than another person to get in on this grace than someone else. So the focus in Christ is not at who's at what level or what status, but on who's our only hope. On who's been unbelievably, inexplicably, gratuitously kind to us. So there's neither Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female or young or old or rich or poor or any other body. There's none of those. There's only in Christ. And delivered, redeemed, forgiven those who have inherited his promises as their only hope in life and in death. So that when we look around at each other, what we see at a more fundamental level than anything else we see is, you too! You too figured out there's nowhere else to turn. You too know what it is to have God's kindness deployed in your life. You too have fixed your hope, your only hope in life and in death on Jesus. You too have found him willing to embrace you when you didn't deserve it. I see you. This is what it is to be one in Christ. Because when we put him on, we know better than to think our desperation can be solved by any other deliverance. And we trust in him for everything. That's the radical claim in this text. Pretty straightforward. I hope it's clear. To be in Christ means that Christ is more important for who you are than anything else about you. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time together teasing out some implications of this huge radical claim. I want to give you four of them. Four implications for our life together from this radical claim. First, we want and we invite everyone to put on Jesus. That means you. Anybody can get in on him. You have an open invitation to join this family into an identity that's secure and a bond more deep and powerful than anything you can imagine. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female and the categories weren't meant to stop there. There is neither success nor failure. No one who is defined by their track record. There is neither single nor married nor divorced. Neither clean and upstanding or stained and ashamed. No matter who you are, no matter what you brought in here with you today, no matter what you've done and can't undo, nothing 
can affect your standing with Jesus if you will turn to him. And that means, friends, nothing can affect your standing in our church either. We are a desperate people. You'll be welcome here. And we are trusting everything to Jesus for our deliverance. He can deliver you too. We want everyone to be in on this. And we'd love the chance to talk to you more about what that means and how you can become a Christian if you're interested in that. Here's the second implication. The second implication of this radical claim is that we want our church to be built on Jesus. Every group comes together around some sort of shared center. You know, the recovery groups I mentioned before as an example of the common anguish that can bind us. Their center is, as best I can understand it, that, that common anguish. Like a, a, a knowledge from experience of what's always lurking out there that could always suck you back in. And, and they're organizing their life uh, around fighting that together. Every group, even the most diverse of groups, needs something that holds them together, some foundation they share. The true of churches, too. What will our foundation be? We've got to be careful about that. Uh, last week, or maybe a week before, I read a really interesting column in the New York Times about a church in New York, I think it was on the Upper West Side, um, that was binding itself in what the New York Times considered to be a fresh and unusual way. So they, they profiled this congregation. Um, it was a, a, a very progressive congregation, uh, very uh, publicly and, and um, joyfully uh, progressive on what it means to be a congregation and, and what it even means to, to look to Jesus. In fact, looking to Jesus wasn't a criteria for belonging to this community. Very intentionally had, had said that he wasn't. The article was commenting in part on the, the, the wide range of religious preferences and belief in the people who were coming to that congregation. Um, celebrating the fact that there were atheists as well as Christians and, and many other categories along the way. So the column was about well, what binds them together if these folks are so far all over the map. And there were different things. I mean, one, they were mostly white, middle, upper class in culture. There was a strong social agenda that they all shared, that they advertised well, that, that, that was on their mark and part of their marketing. People were rallying to that. That was partly what bound them. The, the main point of the article, it was less... What bound, the only thing that struck me as I was preparing for the sermon was less what bound them together than what didn't. Here's a congregation to whom Jesus was optional. And I think for those of us in, in churches like ours that are, that are, shall we say, more traditional, uh, churches that are, that are holding on to an orthodox understanding of who Jesus is and to why we need him if we have any hope in life and in death, can easily look at an example like the congregation profiled in this piece and sort of pat ourselves on the back and know that we're not that and, 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 and stop there. Um, but what struck me was how easy it is for us to slip into really building around, really trusting in for our growth and health and stability, things that have nothing to do with Jesus, even while still affirming a biblical understanding of who Jesus is and why we need him. That can happen to us, friends. That does happen. See, in America, there's so many congregations that, that the temptation is always to try to approach the market, if you will, for potential people to join our church, like you'd approach the market for any product you wanted to sell. You'd emphasize distinctives, things that set you apart from others. You'd try to do market research, figure out what people want, try to lean into giving them what they want in a way that others haven't. Find the niche and provide for it. So easy to do that. So easy for us 
to claim to build around Jesus, but really be trusting things that are no more clearly connected to him than anything that was at work in the church I mentioned earlier. We could be just more about personal branding statements. As church leaders, we can appeal to all sorts of nuanced differences between people and find just one particular kind of person we want to lean into because we know like attracts like. It's easy to be around people who are just like you. You can build a church around certain kinds of music that you know really people will really enjoy, around certain kinds of aesthetic sensibilities that you know will really attract a certain person you've come to understand. You can tailor the kind of applications you give to make sure that they really hit the felt needs of one particular kind of person. And you can build the church that way. You can. And we're not above it. So we need to always be asking ourselves, how important is Jesus to what we're doing here? Is Jesus what people will notice about us? Is Jesus all that's necessary for someone to be a part of what we're doing? Or would they need to get Jesus plus a whole bunch of other things that might be really uncomfortable and unusual for them? We don't want to build our church on marginal differences that have nothing to do with his life and death and his resurrection, with the life and death stakes of the gospel. And Dave and I saw an incredible example of this in play this time last week. We traveled to, uh, to Turkey to visit with some of our partners over there who were there for the sake of the gospel and to do an event where we got to encourage them and preach and sing together. Uh, and last weekend, we got to wor- worship with a congregation in Turkey where one of our members belongs and, and where he serves. Uh, Mitchell Killian is a member of Trinity who has gone out just taking his own personal business um, to, to work in another part of the world because he could and to serve a local church there. Um, this is a public local church. One reason I'm able to talk about it so freely here. It's, uh, it's registered. The government knows all about it. And they are living openly for, for Jesus in this city. We got to worship there uh, with them last Sunday. And what we saw um, is as clear an example of what Paul's talking about here as I've ever seen. You've got people from several different countries. Not just Turks, but Iranians, Persians, Iraqis. We've got Africans there studying in, in the university in the city. Um, and other countries, I pro- people I probably just didn't meet. Their worship services are diverse. No one's getting their favorite kind of music. In fact, they switch back and forth mid-song between the language they're, speak- they're singing in. Sometimes where, where the songs are translated into both languages, they'll be singing a song in like a, you know, like a, a mid-90s worn-out worship chorus over here. They're really into it because they're singing together. This is their only chance to do it. And it's in Turkish for one verse, and they'll switch to Farsi for the next verse. Right there. You know, if you're a Turkish speaker and you don't speak Farsi, you don't sit that part out. They've printed it so you can actually speak the, sing the words with your, with your Farsi-speaking friends. You know what they are because you just sung it in your own language. And you get to sing together with people who you can't even talk to. Because they get that in Christ, there's neither male nor female, or Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's Christ. And those who are united by shared desperation, who've experienced his deliverance. It's beautiful to see. It's our prayer for our church too. We want our church to be built on Jesus. A third implication from this claim Paul has made is that we want our friendships to be built on Jesus too. And this is a really similar idea to what I've just said. I, what I've just said is, is, is on the whole, you know, zoomed out, we want our local church and the decisions we make about our life together, about our times on Sunday mornings, about our programming, all of that, to focus on Christ so that he's what's noticed and so that we don't put up any barriers besides Christ where we can help it to anyone else joining in with us. Now I want to talk about that same idea but on the level of personal friendships. We want our friendships to be built on Jesus. 
I mean, obviously, there is a powerful draw to one another when there are similar life experiences, when you're at a similar stage of life from somebody else, when you have interests that really draw you to someone else, shared interests, shared hobbies, shared reading tastes or sports or whatever. These sorts of connections are sweet and they're fine. Let me say it differently. These sorts of connections are inevitable. I mean, those are going to happen. And we shouldn't feel guilty about it when we just immediately hit it off with somebody because we just get one another. That's okay. But on their own, friends, if that's all we've got, then we're living far beneath the vision for our life together that Paul's verses right here put in front of us. Far beneath it. I want to suggest some questions to ask of your personal friendships. Do you have close friendships with people who don't share your interests? You know, people who wouldn't read the same kind of books you're into, watch the same kind of films that you do, or spend your free time in the same places. Close personal friendships with people who don't have the same background that you do, that don't share your ethnicity, that don't share your level of education, that have a different level of disposable income, different political affiliation. If these differences don't affect our standing with Christ, I hope we can all concede that. If these kinds of differences don't define whether or not we can be in Christ, they shouldn't affect our standing with one another either. We should be able to connect with and share life with, to rejoice and mourn with people who are vastly different from us. Because we're joined to one another on a level far more fundamental than anything that divides us. So first, do you have friendships like this with people very different from you? Another question, how could you pursue friendship that reflects this reality more than your current friendships do? What are some practical steps you could take? This is one I'd encourage you to take in your small groups if you're in a small group, something you could talk to with with friends there. That first question might just lead you to more shame. You know, like, okay, I guess I really don't have any friends that are really that different from me, and I guess I failed this sermon. But that's not the response that, that we want you to have. We want you to think creatively about how you... This is a promise right here. Paul's just stating the truth. So if you're in Christ, whether you realize it or not, whether your current friendships reflect the truth or not, the truth is you are already bound to people who might be very different from you. You don't have to create that bond. That pressure is not on you. Your responsibility is just to lean into what God has already done and watch Him work. So, what could you do? How could you pursue friendships that reflect the power of the connection Paul's talking about right here? Ask your group. I mean, one option for that would be to find new friends who are not like you. Our church could even be a place for you to start. There are people sitting right around you right now who are very different from you in a whole host of ways. It won't take you that long to figure out how if you'll, if you'll strike up a conversation and look for it. You might start right here and proactively seek out friendships with people who aren't like you in some fundamental ways. Here's another option, though. You might think differently about the friends you already have, particularly if you've been burdened by your differences from one another. If there's something about your set of friendships right now that weighs you down, a lack of connection, because it feels like what you're dealing with is so different from what they're dealing with, then another way for you to lean into what Paul's talking about here would be to rethink that. 
It might be true that they can't understand what you're going through, that they haven't been there before. But the real question is, in that case, is the fact that we share Christ enough for me? If we share Him in common, will I be satisfied with that? It's a chance to ask yourself, what identity matters most to me? When we have trouble connecting with other people, friends, in other words, here's another way to put it. When we have trouble connecting with other people around us, it could be, one possibility is, it could be that we've shifted our focus from our common anguish onto some unique struggles that we're living with so that those unique struggles become more important to our experience of life than that underlying common anguish that binds us with everyone else who is a sinner in need of redemption and a dying person in need of resurrection. It could be, when we struggle to connect with one another, that our unique assets and opportunities, the things we're into, the things, opportunities that are available to us that maybe aren't to others, have become more important to who we are and to our experience of life than what we've been given in Christ that they also share, that what we've been promised at His return that they also hope for. It could be, when we struggle to connect with one another, that we need to recenter our own sense of ourselves around our common desperation and our common deliverance. And you might be surprised at the beautiful friendships God will give you when those things matter most to who you are. Here's one last implication. I'm going to close with this one. We want friendships built on Jesus. Here's the fourth implication. We want an empathy with one another driven by Jesus. I want to end here because I think there's a way to misread what Paul has said in these verses. And I want to make sure we don't fall into it. If we emphasize what we've already said in the wrong way, we could fall into a trap. See, what Paul has said is that in Christ, we have a shared identity that's more fundamental to who we are than anything that separates us. And we want to make sure we recognize it and build around it. That shared identity is crucial. And that's what was being threatened by the people Paul was writing this letter to correct. But, that does not mean, and Paul does not say, that the differences between us aren't important or that we shouldn't pay close attention to them. You're misunderstanding Paul. If we, if we say that because we're all one in Christ, we shouldn't talk about the impact of race or class or gender or other categories like that. In fact, friends, refusing to talk about differences like race and class and gender through some sort of solidarity with Jesus together would be to miss the point of what Paul's saying, to overturn the kind of solidarity Paul is establishing here. Because being in Christ doesn't make the differences go away. Those differences will still have a dramatic effect on our experience of life. Being in Christ, though, unites us so that all of a sudden, we have a reason for understanding and entering into the experience of brothers and sisters whose whose experience is vastly different from ours. We have a reason to care, a stronger incentive to take on their burdens as our burdens, especially where these differences are burdens. Then when we're one in Christ, we have a new reason to get in the game and figure out what they're experiencing and how we can serve. 
It would be ridiculous. Think about this, just for an example. It would be ridiculous to say to a brother who's come down with cancer that the cancer doesn't matter because, you know, after all, we're family. And our family connection to one another is what's important. We're both brothers. We're both McCulloughs. So cancer is sort of marginal to who we are. We wouldn't say that. I mean, sure, maybe it's important to say you're not defined by cancer, but by family attachment. I will not let your cancer be who you are to me. That could be important if that's what you needed to hear. But, but to not care about that cancer, well, that's actually to, ne- to deny the bond that we have. The fact that it's happening to a brother now opens up a whole world of interest in me that I didn't have before. This is a hypothetical. I don't have a brother with cancer, but I've known friends who have had family members all of a sudden get a disease they hadn't, didn't know anything about and by the next time you talk to them they've had 24 hours of unbroken WebMD reading and they now know everything there is to know about this, about this disease and what its, what its symptoms are and about what the treatment plans are. They're evaluating the, the, the care that they're getting at their, their doctors. They're, they're pushing second opinions because that oncologist didn't seem to know what he was talking about. Now they're the would-be experts and the reason they all of a sudden got interested in this thing that they didn't know anything about is that it affects their brother. Now it's their problem too. Yeah, they have a family attachment, but that means cancer becomes more crucial to them, not less. It's because we're defined by Jesus. Because we share Him in common. That we should take a deep and active interest in the lives and the burdens of those who fit into different demographic categories than we do. Our bond in Christ becomes a reason to care about the things that afflict our brothers and sisters. A new bridge into an experience that's vastly different from ours. And we have here no justification for ignoring those differences. I think you can apply this for yourselves. I would encourage you to. To think carefully about what things are affecting the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ that affect them because of their race or their class or their gender in a unique way than your, than your experience. And to ask, what can I do to become better educated and a better ally for them as they live in this world as they are? To leverage our unity in Christ for deeper empathy. I think that's what Paul's letter here implies for us. And that's what I'm going to pray for now, that God will, would help us to be faithful Let's pray. Father, I pray that this short, radical, and powerful text would work its way into our hearts so that we are more deeply connected to one another, more passionately committed to each other's good, more driven to understand one another and to to enter in and more glorifying to you as our connections to one another seem inexplicable to all who look at it. I pray that you would make in our church a diverse community that has no explanation apart from your power. I pray against barriers we may not be recognizing that are holding back that diversity in our church. I pray that you would protect us from establishing anything other than Jesus as a necessary uh, bar for entry into our church and into our community life. And I pray that you would draw us closer together because of what we share in him. And make us more wise 
and understanding and helping with one another's differences than we've been before. We pray for this miracle to be done in us so that we can glorify you and so that our confidence in your power to save is stronger than it has been. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.